0: Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, The remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a challenging passage And so we pray that you would give us a special grace this morning to receive it, to um, rightly understand it, and that um, in this we would see uh, your goodness and kindness, and especially that we would see that to us in Jesus Christ, and that you would draw us to believe in him and to trust in him in new ways, in in the difficulties of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is, um, this is a tough topic today. Uh, we don't preach on this every week if you're new, but this is a tough topic. We're talking about the sovereignty of God this morning. When I was in college, um, it was normal for Christians to sit around and talk about heavy, deep theological questions. And of course, one of those was what we call uh, Calvinism or the sovereignty of God, things like predestination and election. And uh, I was reminded of, the way I was in college, when uh, on my 41st birthday, uh, an old college friend wrote on my wall, "Have you got that tulip cat- tattoo yet?" You know, and I'm, that's a, a little reference to this conversation of the sovereignty of God. So what she was saying is, is "I was kind of obnoxious." Um, happy birthday! So, but you know, there's a reason people talk about this topic because it's uh, intellectually heavy, um, it's dense, it's it's talked about in Scripture. Um, And it it can be a very troubling thing to contemplate and to think about. But I want us to see that ultimately today, this doctrine of the sovereignty of God is meant to be a comfort to us. Now, in this series, um, in Isaiah, we're jumping all throughout the book um, to look at who God is and to get a new vision of what God is like uh, as we kind of survey Isaiah and jump around And so far, we've looked at things like the holiness of God, and we've seen that he is this totally different type of being than us. He's holy, transcendent, pure, and good, and yet he is near to us in grace. And we looked at how God is timeless and eternal and all-powerful, and yet we're told that he is near to us in weakness, and he gives strength to those who are weary. Uh, we've seen that he's the creator and ruler of all things, and yet he is faithful to his promises which cannot be thwarted. And last week we saw that God is steadfast love, that he, um, he shows love and kindness to those who are suffering and brokenhearted, even unfaithful. God is always faithful to his promises. And today we're going to look at um, the absolute sovereignty of God. And so we're jumping into Isaiah 10, which um, I think tells us about this. And um, you you may not remember what's going on around it. So I just wanted to kind of remind you of the story that the first like 39 chapters of Isaiah are dealing with his prophetic ministry to Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And um, in the first nine chapters or so, basically, Isaiah has been announcing that judgment is coming on all of Israel, but especially on the northern part of Israel, but Judah as well, the southern part. Judgment is coming. They have been unfaithful. They have not been a light to the nations. They have not lived according to God's covenant. They have not obeyed his law. They have turned to worshiping other idols in order to get along with the nations around them. And because of that, they have become an unjust people. The sign of this unfaithfulness is that they are oppressing the poor, Um, that they are not taking care of widows and orphans and strangers. Um, They have become an unjust, oppressive people just like the nations. And so um, because they have not trusted in Yahweh, they're not flourishing, and neither are the nations around them. Israel has become divided. And so um, what God says to them is Assyria, this terrible empire from the north and the east, is going to come in and destroy Israel and burn it down and take people into exile But he also says in the midst of all this, there will be a remnant. There will be salvation for some. Um, There is going to be light and darkness, he says. So when we get to Isaiah 10, um, he, he sort of turns. He's been talking to Israel and Judah, but in Isaiah 10, you may have noticed the very first thing that I read was that Isaiah says, woe to Assyria. And so the passage we're looking at is actually Uh, this cry of despair or sorrow or you could say a statement of warning to the very nation that he says is going to come and judge his people. And all throughout this passage, what Isaiah is saying is that God condemns Assyria for their pride and for their wickedness and their evil. Now, um, this is kind of a tough passage, like I said, um, but it helps us see what God is like. And so that's what I want to focus on today. We're going to start by looking at the sovereignty of God. And then we're going to talk about the purposes of God, the justice of God, and the remnant of God. So first, the sovereignty of God over all nations, particularly look at verses 5 and 6. He begins, like I said a moment ago, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him. Now what Isaiah is saying here is that nations and kings are but tools in God's hands. He is saying that Assyria is nothing more than a tool. It is um, a shepherd's rod that God uses um, in anger, used in discipline against his own people. They are nothing more than a staff or a club that is wielding God's holy and righteous and loving anger against his own people. Later on, in verse 15, he describes Assyria as an, as an axe that chops down a tree. And he says, you know, does an axe wield the one that wields it? Of course not. He's saying that God is the one wielding this axe, this nation, Assyria, against his own people. And in verse 6, he says that explicitly against a godless nation. He's talking about Israel here, his own people, the people who are supposed to know the true God. He says that um, God is sending Assyria against a godless nation, against his people. And he is commanding them to go and inflict this pain, this punishment, this correction on Israel. Now, Assyria, friends, is is an empire unlike the world had really ever seen before. They had a massive army. They had a massive political infrastructure. Uh, They had a massive cultural and religious set of institutions. Um, This is essentially the United States or uh, Russia or China of their day. A massive empire. Nobody at that time could have imagined something more powerful than Assyria. And God is saying, um, this is just a tool in my hands. Now, I don't know if this is still the case, but when I was in high school, if you called somebody a tool... That was not a nice thing to say about them, right? I mean, what did that mean? Uh, some of you are old enough, or maybe people use it still. But if you're, if you're like, oh, you're such a tool, you know, you're saying someone is basically being used, aren't they? Right? They don't, they don't even know what they're doing. That they're doing things and they're acting in certain ways, but everyone's like, you're, you're a fool. You don't even realize that you're just a tool. You're being used by other people here, right? And there's a sense in which that is what God is saying about Assyria. They are unwittingly doing the will of God. And they don't even know it. He is wielding them. Um, uh, Have you? Some of you all played Mario Brothers. Do you remember that video game and uh, the the original one? And I guess a lot of them. They um, they have like objects that take on kind of a personality. And so like I think about the cannons that shoot those those bullets. You know what I'm talking about? They kind of fly through the air, and you have to dodge them. And they they have eyes and like little wings. They're almost personified. They're like given person like qualities and. I feel like in some of the animations of, of Mario, um, they take on like a, like they exist in order to be fired at people, right. And I kind of think about Assyria in that way here that, that it's just the tool and it, it's got one thing in mind, which is to destroy, you know and it's just going bidding, doing its thing, it's going out trying to destroy. but it doesn't understand that it's um, that it's actually being used by God for a completely different purpose. So the greatest empire in the world here, is nothing more than a tool that God is wielding for his own purposes. And this is something that is confirmed throughout Scripture. And so I just want to highlight a couple other places. In, in the book of Isaiah, later on in chapter 46, God says, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purposes. So Isaiah there is telling us that, that God is unlike any other creature, any other being, that he determines the beginning of history to the end of history, that he has his own purposes, that he, has count, that he doesn't have other counselors that tell him what he should do. He has determined what he's going to do in history, and he will accomplish those purposes. Ephesians 1.11 says something similar. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not other people's counsel, but his own counsel, what he determines to do. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. And in that passage, the the active agent is implied. God works all things together for good. So what is this teaching about? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith, this is one of our doctrinal standards in our church uh, as a Presbyterian church. In chapter 3, section 1 says this about, about God. God from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Now that is a hard thing to hear. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. This this is the language of a king. He decrees, he says things and Things happen according to what he says. Not because of some outside influence, but according to his own will alone. Now, if you're thinking carefully here, you are likely having all sorts of questions about how this works out, right? What about free will? What about responsibility? How is God not evil? There's all sorts of things that come up out of this, and maybe these are some of the questions that you will have. But the Bible does affirm that we have a type of free will. Uh, It kind of depends on what we mean by that. We are not animals, we are not robots, um, but we are agents with wills. That is, we have the capacity to decide rather than to act automatically according to just different stimuli or with some hardwired programming. We are moral agents that do what we want to do. And that deals with, then, responsibility. Why are we responsible for what we do? Because um, we make choices, And we're not constrained by things outside of us. We are operating and doing the things that we desire. And so we're responsible for those things. They might say, well, what about how is God not evil? If he ordains everything and there's a lot of terrible things that have gone on in the world and maybe in your own life. How is it that God is not evil? The Bible affirms over and over again that God is the final and ultimate cause of all things. He upholds all things um, so that everything exists and moves in his power. And that makes possible everything that occurs, but he is never the agent, the active one, doing any evil. And you might say, okay, that's still a pretty hard pill to swallow. <laughs> that doesn't really resolve it for me. Because you could say, why did God create this world? This world where these things have happened to me. Or someone I love. Or we can look at great atrocities in history and say, why did he create a world where this would ever be possible, that he ordained these circumstances? And so it's pretty natural for us in this sort of debate, this question about God's sovereignty to say, how is God not responsible for my suffering? And I want to say um, that there is not an easy answer to that question, other than to say that this is the story that God has written and that ultimately his purposes are Good for you and for this whole creation. And that's the second thing I want us to see here, um, the purposes of God. And go back to verse six through 11. I'm going to read two of those verses. Again, God says against a godless nation, I send him, Assyria, and against the people of my wrath, Israel, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend. Assyria does not so intend. And his heart Does not so think. It is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. What Isaiah is showing us here is that God's purposes do not align with Assyria's purposes. God is sending Assyria to correct Israel, and he talks about a remnant later on, and we'll get to that in a moment. But Assyria has completely different intentions than God. Assyria's intentions are to destroy Israel. And every other nation they encounter, they want to dominate the world. And anyone who studies history and looks at Assyria, they they will see exactly this is what Assyria tried to do over and over and over again. Um, In verse 8 through 11, Assyria um, is given voice. And um, the prophet Isaiah sort of speaks for Assyria where they boast about their conquests. They're boasting about defeating Israel and all these other cities that they've already defeated before that. And all the gods of these nations But Isaiah is showing us that God wields Assyria like a tool, and he wields that tool in a way that is not aligned with what the tool is trying to do. Assyria wants to destroy and to dominate, but God wants to correct and to refine and to renew his people and ultimately the entire world. God created this world as a good place. We just read about that in our scripture reading and and last week in our scripture reading. God created the world. Good. It is humanity that has ruined this world. As we've all gone, gone our own way, we have ruined this world and we continue to ruin this world. And God does get angry about that. We saw that last week. He gets angry at the destruction of his creation. And yet his steadfast love is deeper. His faithfulness to his purposes to create a world of beauty and joy and life with him is much deeper than his anger against our sin and the things that we do to ruin this world. And so what God is doing in evil, in the horrible things that people experience in this life is different than what those evil agents intend to do, like Assyria. And we see this, again, all throughout Scripture. Go back to the book of Genesis and read the story of Joseph at the end of that book. Look at chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph says to his brothers who sold them into slavery, wanted to get rid of them, almost killed them. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And that's what we learn from that story, is that his brothers meant evil against him, but God used his being in slavery, going to Egypt, to create a haven of safety for his people during famine, where they grew to this great number. God's purposes were not the same as the brothers' purposes. Exodus 4 tells us the same thing. Pharaoh intends to keep Israel in slavery, but God intends to show his power and to bring life to the world by defeating Pharaoh, who hardens his heart time and time again to keep Israel enslaved. And what these passages teach us is what we call the doctrine of concurrence, or the doctrine of compatibilism. And that is the idea that both God and secondary causes are both at work. Both things can be said to be true causes in a sense. God is never the immediate agent of sin. Never does he violate people's agency either. Instead, God is the reason people have agency. And he works through their agency to bring about his purposes in the world. And that's why the Westminster Confession in that same section I read a moment ago, 3.1, says uh, all that stuff about God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And then it says, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of secondary causes taken away, but rather established. That's very theological language. You might say that's kind of heady. But basically it's saying our freedom is not in competition with God. In fact, it is enabled by it. We have freedom because of the freedom of God. God works in the world. We work in the world. These are not in competition. We are wholly free, and yet God is wholly working through us to bring about his purposes. And that is a great mystery. There is no doubt about it. It is a great mystery. It is not something that we can fully comprehend. But we have to remember that God works his good purposes through all things, even great evils. And his purposes are not the same as the evil purposes of men. Right? Remember earlier the axe I mentioned. The axe, let's give it the Mario Brothers personification, right? What does an axe want to do? An axe wants to chop down a tree. That's what an axe does. And it's, I want to chop down a tree. And you can just see the axe going for the tree. But God is not intending to level a tree. He is intending to build a house. Right? It's a different thing. A rod intends to beat and to harm but a father intends to build up a man. Do you see how that works? The tool's purpose is different than what God is doing. Men intend evil, but God's purposes in the world are to conform us to himself and to bring us into life with the triune God. Now, of course, again, you might say, but what about the evil? What about the violation, the, the life-altering or life-ending horror? And you have to understand, friends, that Israel no doubt felt this. There's there's not a doubt in my mind that they felt this very thing. Because um, not everybody in Israel was guilty of everything Isaiah prophesied about. There's some people who could say, look, I, I've been trusting in Yahweh, I've been keeping covenant, and yet this horrible wicked nation comes. And Assyria, friends, was incredibly brutal. Um, I won't even go into the horrible things they did, but I will say that public torture was one of them. Some believe that they um, were either the originator or at least an, an early uh, influencer of the idea of crucifixion, which then the Persians took up and then the Romans perfected. But the idea of impaling someone publicly along the roads to humiliate them, but also to scare their enemies um, was a common thing that the Assyrians did. And so no doubt there is Israelites who had faced incredibly graphic and violating things. The Israelites felt that too. And so We need to see that Isaiah says more about who this God is that's important. And I want us to look then at the justice of God. So um, turn to verse 12 through 19. I'm only going to read 12 here. But we see something about the justice of God. Um, Isaiah says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. What Isaiah shows us here is that God is going to punish evil, right? This whole whole passage starts with woe to Assyria. It is a warning. It is a declaration of judgment. Israel did do evil, and they are receiving judgment, but Assyria, this instrument of judgment, is also going to be judged, God says. And in no way does God defend the actions of the Assyrians? Instead, he condemns their pride and their wickedness, and he promises that he will put an end to it, and he will pay it back in a just way. And he uses this metaphor further down of sickness and fire ravaging the Assyrian army and the Assyrian um, military as a whole. And this is actually what we learn from history if you look at, The accounts of Assyria's uh, military campaigns, they ravaged all of Israel down toward Egypt. They ravaged Judah, um, and this is what Isaiah said was going to happen. And then they surround Jerusalem. They put it under siege, and then the Assyrian account kind of uh, goes a little unclear at that point. But history in Scripture tells us that there was a sickness that went through the um, Assyrian camp and the army for some reason, had to return home, and Judah was Jerusalem was ultimately spared. But um, that's just a picture of the final judgment that God is going to bring. God will deal with every injustice and every evil. Now, let me just recap what I've said so far about the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over all of history. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. I've said that God works his purposes in the world, even through evil things. And I've said that God will punish evil. Now, if I stopped here, I I think, honestly, that would still seem pretty terrible. I, I think it would. I don't know about you. But I still think that would not be very satisfying. God is powerful. He works everything for the greater good. Honestly, I think a Muslim could say the same thing about his understanding of God. God's powerful. He does whatever he wants. He's going to punish evil. But I don't think the Bible stops there. Um, Some of you have watched Stranger Things, that movie on Netflix. I'm sorry if this is a spoiler, but I've got to use it. I'm not going to spoil the whole thing, but I'm going to tell part of the story. Uh, You may know there's this character um, that uh, the, the person 11, one of the main characters, calls Papa. Um, Papa is doing science experiments on children. And he's doing this for the greater good. It's it's trying to be an advance in science, and he's got them in this this lab, and he puts them in situations where they experience a lot of pain, and they face some very scary stuff. And Eleven is one of those children. And yet he talks to these kids in a very fatherly way, and he becomes a comfort to them. They call him Papa um, early on in the, the show, at least. But as time goes by, you realize and you kind of see he's doing some pretty horrible things, or he's allowing horrible things to happen to these kids. Something is off here, and what is it about this? I mean, he's he's got noble intentions. His purposes are for, you know, science and for the good of humanity, and yet he's allowing these um, painful and scary things to happen to the children. And as you think about it, uh, you realize, well, what's off here is that he is in the booth, and the kids are the ones going through the science experiment. And I think that is at the heart of um, why Christianity says more than just God is sovereign and he's doing everything for the greater good. Because God does not stay in the booth. Um, and that Jesus shows us this. This is the whole point of what Jesus is doing, is that God doesn't stay aloof. He sends Jesus into the world and Jesus suffers with us. And for us. And, you know, he faced all the normal sufferings that we face in life. All the normal things we go through that are just hard about life. He faced those. But he also went to the cross where he suffered an incredibly humiliating and violating and traumatizing and painful public death on a cross. And so what we see in the story of the Bible is that God joins us in our suffering. He wrote a story, not that just would have some happy ending, but a story where he entered into the very worst of the evils of human history and experienced tragedy and justice with us. And this was his plan. This is what he came up with. This is the story that he wrote, which is that the evil empire would come against him. And he would bear the full weight of the world's violence and the full weight of his own anger against sin on the cross. And so, friends, I, I submit that the sovereignty of God is a terrifying idea if God remained distant from us. And we could have little confidence that God's purposes are good if he stayed in the booth. But God did not stay there, right? He came into the world, and he experienced that with us. There's an old joke Um Kind of a character caricature of, of Calvinism, which teaches the sovereignty of God. Which is, what did the Calvinist say when he fell down the stairs? Glad that's over. It's funny, guys. It's and, you know it, the point is, you know that's going to happen. It's just the hardship of life, and now it's past few, and that's the comfort. You know, is that like, okay, this plan that God has worked out is finally over, and it's I'm not in pain more. But that's not actually what. It, Scripture teaches, I don't think it's Calvinism either. Um, It's that God has come into the world. And so any suffering that we go through is a participation in God's own suffering on our behalf. And through that suffering, we can trust that we can be raised up into new life with him, which is what God created us for. We would have little hope that we would escape judgment if it were not for the fact that Christ died for our sins. That is the good news of Jesus He ensures that all of our suffering will not destroy us, but God will use it to renew us and to give us abundant life. The good news is that Jesus came to forgive even our evils. And that's why I think this passage ends in verse 20, at least what we're reading, 20 and 21, with this idea of the remnant of God. In that day, Isaiah says, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. That's They were leaning on Assyria. They were trusting on them, and that turned on them. But they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. What Isaiah says here is that God disciplined Israel and would punish As- Assyria all for the purpose of restoring a people to himself, a people that trusted in him again rather than the false gods or the empires. And that, friends, is the invitation to us today. That um, whatever we are going through, whatever we have been through, um, we have to trust that God was working all things, even that, for our own good. And that um, he promises there is life on the other side of this. He knows that's painful. I mean, we sang about it in that song, behind... This providence, there's a smiling face. There's pain, yes. God doesn't deny that. He, he wrote this story. He knows it. He knows what you've been through. But he also knows it as one who has been through pain himself. But he says, going through that, if, as you trust in me, there is life on the other side of this. Abundant life, greater life. A life that you actually probably could not have experienced if you had not gone through that suffering. Now, in no way, in no way am I saying your suffering is good. And in no way this morning am I saying or is this text saying that the suffering that you've been through is always your fault and it's because of your own sin. Some of our suffering is because of our sin. Some of our suffering is because of the sins of others. Some of our sin is because the world is a broken place. But whatever sort of suffering you experience, there is forgiveness and there is the promise of healing and abundant life on the other side. You can trust that God will take all your suffering and bring good out of it. And the evil ones that have done evil to you, if they do not repent, they will be dealt with. And if you've done evil, you can be forgiven. Now what's the alternative to this view of life, honestly? There's really not that many other views. There is no God, no justice, no hope. There's a God but he can't really do anything about it. No justice, no hope. There is a God, And I hate him for it. That's only going to lead you to more death and misery. He came and freely entered into your suffering and died for you. And he's working for your good. You can trust that God. Now, like I said, this is heavy. This is hard stuff, a lot of mystery. I didn't resolve everything. So if you have questions, let's talk. You can text him or we can talk another time. But um, ultimately, what Isaiah is telling us here about God is meant to comfort us if we trust him.